Welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. A few days ago, we brought you some of the best brains in blockchain. Richard Brown from R3 and Richard Crook from RBS just killed it. And they were kind enough to sit down with us to talk one-on-one about their background and where blockchain is headed. I'll hand over to, well, I'm going to hand over to myself. I'm the blockchain lead here at 11FS, and I'm not going to lie, I was having the time of my life with these interviews, but when the people you're speaking to are as smart as engaging, how can you say no? So right up, here's Richard Brown. Excellent. So I'm here with Richard Brown, the CTO of R3. Um, And for those of our listeners who don't know what R3 is, what is R3? So R3, we're a consortium of over 75 of the world's largest financial institutions. Um, I guess we first came to prominence in September last year in, in 2015 when we announced our first members. We grew to uh, 42 members in November last year and we now have over 75. And we have quite a simple mission. It's to understand, apply and, um, and develop blockchain technology um, in the financial markets, financial services arena. Very, very cool. And about yourself, Richard, did you ever think you'd end up where you are? And how did you end up being CTO of R3? And what was your journey? Yeah, I ask myself that quite a lot. So I, um, until I joined R3, I was an IBM lifer. So I'd um, worked in IBM um, since I since I graduated from university. So I guess like like many people, you go to university, you don't quite know what you want to do. So I studied mathematics. Um, I realized I quite liked it at university. So I stayed for an extra year and studied computer science after I graduated and then joined IBM as an engineer. Um, and what I realized quite quickly was that um, you know, engineering was very interesting. I enjoyed working on, um, on software products. It was primarily middleware, getting computers to talk to each other, moving data around the world. But I had no idea why, why anybody bought this stuff or who the customers were. And I thought, actually, I need to get out there and um, not just be sitting in the, um, in the lab in this this amazing facility in, in, um, in the countryside in Winchester. So I, um, so I worked through a variety of roles in IBM in, in consulting and in engineering, as I described, and in, in pre-sales, actually going out and explaining how this stuff works to customers, um, but almost always focusing on financial markets, financial services, and banking. And then I guess probably about three or four years ago now, I came across this thing called Bitcoin. It was just this, really just like a one paragraph um, description in, in The Economist of all places that talked about this strange new virtual currency. And it just, it piqued my interest. And I read up and read up about it, read the white paper, downloaded it and played with it and didn't really think much more about it. It, it appealed to my instincts. It was sort of, I was interested in economics and finance and politics. So I had, um, had to play with it and then put it to one side. And it was only really a year or so later, so I guess three or four years ago now, that um, it really came to prominence. There was a huge amount of um, talk about it in the news. And, and it just occurred to me that all the technologists who were talking about it really didn't understand banking. So all these ideas they had about how it was going to destroy banks or change the world, I thought that just doesn't make any sense. And all the people who were petrified by it and thought it was the worst thing ever didn't really understand the technology. So I started writing about it and I just started just engaging because it was, it was relevant to IBM, it was relevant to, to our clients. Um, and I just got more and more down the rabbit hole realizing that actually it's the underlying technology, it was the blockchain, not Bitcoin, that could be relevant to finance. Um, and then the, the light bulb moment for me, and I guess this gets us back full circle to, to R3, was it, it, it occurred to me, as it did to our founder, David Rutter at, at, at R3, it occurred to me that if this technology, if this underlying blockchain technology is going to get deployed in finance, or in any industry for that matter, it will have to be done by multiple firms working together and multiple firms working together at once. And therefore, when R3 um, came to prominence and it was clear that David, our CEO, had had managed to pull together this astonishing consortium of banks, um, I jumped at the opportunity to um, to join as a CTO. That's a 
heck of a story. Uh, really good though. Um, and it begs the question then, if you really cared about blockchain and DLT, why should anybody care about it? Like if I'm in a bank or I work for a bank and, or even if I'm just uh, somebody who's interested in the, in the area. So it's, we, we wrestled with that for a really long time when we, when we kicked off the consortium because, um, it would have been so easy, you know, if you had, as, as we did at the end of November last year, we had, we had 42 of the world's largest banks and me as the head of the technology team, as the, as, 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 as the guy who was running this thing we call the architecture working group, which is this, this body formed of, you know, tens originally, now hundreds of really senior technologists and architects from all our member banks. It would have been so easy to say, you know, it's our mission to take all the technologies are given and let's just apply it to banking let's apply blockchain to banking let's apply you know, distributed ledgers to finance but we thought well no we you know we we have this i felt this weight of responsibility we have these we have these institutions who are who are, who are working with us and who are ultimately who are paying our bills we, we need to do better than that we need to do some real engineering and some real thinking so we spent as i say considerable time at the end of last year saying what what if anything is new or different about this technology? It's not often that you know, there is a breakthrough in computer science. There's, there's, you know, there are waves of hype all the time, but it's not often that there's something new. So let's be really, really precise about what is new here and what's different. Um, and, and we came to the conclusion, and it, it doesn't sound profound, but, but genuinely it is. Um, we came to the conclusion that what is new about this space, about blockchain and distributed ledgers, is for the first time we can now build systems, build you know, computer systems, technologies that are run between different organizations who don't trust each other, yet allow them to come to consensus, allow them to agree and know they agree about the existence, the nature and you know, the evolution of, of, of some shared facts, some shared data. You know, in the Bitcoin case, it was just you know, how many Bitcoins are there and who owns them and who's allowed to spend them. Um, but there are other platforms. There's Ethereum. And what they're interested in is, is completely different. It's a state of, it's quite, quite technical. It's the state of a, of a virtual computer. But what we, what we realized and, and what has formed the basis of our work is actually this idea of having organizations who don't fully trust each other. You know, I can see them here. We're in, we're, we're doing this podcast in Canary Wharf. I can see one, two, I can see about four different banks out of the window and they trade with each other. They trust each other enough to, 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 to lend each mother or lend each other money or to, to enter into deals. But they don't trust each other to maintain their books and records. They maintain their own books and records. So if we look at this technology that allows people who don't fully trust each other to come to consensus about some facts, it just becomes self-evident that there's a massive opportunity now in finance wherever that firms, wherever firms record the same data that their peers do, that their counterparts do, and then have to manage it, this blockchain technology, this distributed ledger technology can be used to massively simplify and reduce that cost and complexity by just doing it once and knowing for sure that what you see is what your counterpart sees. But if I'm just doing it once, surely I centralize everything. Surely that's the answer to all the world's ills. Well, sure. That's, um, that is a perfectly legitimate and, and honorable approach. You know, you look at, imagine 5, 10, 20, 50 years ago. In fact, even go back to the 1960s and 70s, you know, with the famous Wall Street paper crisis, the paperwork crisis, you could argue there was, you know, there was a similar thing then. What was the problem back then? You know, the, the growth, there has been a massive growth in share trading, the brokerages and the, the various firms involved just couldn't move the share certificates around between each other fast enough. And the, the solution they came up with was, let's build some centralized infrastructure, what ultimately became the, the DTCC, the Depository Trust and um, Clearing Corporation. Let's build some central infrastructure. We will put, we will put all the paper in that, all the share certificates in that organization, they can keep track of it for us all. 
And that works pretty well. It, it, work, it works brilliantly, in fact. But the, um, and that solved the paperwork crisis. And that's been the recurring theme in finance for, for decades now. If you get to a point where there's just too much complexity or too much risk, we'll create a central infrastructure. And that's often the right approach. What distributed ledgers and, and blockchain is, is showing us is that actually if you don't for risk purposes or regulatory purposes need to create a new central infrastructure, but you still do still do need to get the benefits of knowing that the data is consistent and is accurate, um, you can do it through a technological solution through distributed ledgers so that you know that you know, your system is in sync with your peers without having to go and create yet another central inst- institution. That's a, a really well put point. And, and I guess, why is that exciting, I guess? You know, so is there, um, is there a real benefit to this for the, for the banks? Well, I guess, and maybe this sounds trite, but you know, the, the, the real reason for doing this isn't to be nice to the banks or to be, to be good for the banks. It's because ultimately you know, everything any corporation does is ultimately paid for by their customers. So again, I'm looking out of this window and um, you know, looking over Simon's shoulder and I can see you know, lights on from floor one to floor 30 of, um, you know, of, of, of the bank that's sitting behind him. And, and a huge amount of the work that goes on there, therefore the cost, the complexity, the risk, the duplication, the error is caused by people whose job essentially and by systems whose jobs essentially are to check that all the information that sits inside that that tower block is in sync with the data that sits in the tower block next door. Who pays for that? The customers pay for that. So on that note, how is Corda different? How is Corda different from traditional blockchains? Is this something that, you know, if I get a, a academic come and tell me what Bitcoin is, do I understand what Corda is or is this very, very different? Actually, ironically, um, Corda is, is, is actually in, in places quite similar in philosophy to the underlying design of Bitcoin in some ways. Um, but it is in general very different to some of the blockchain platforms. So maybe, maybe the way to, to think about that is, is to go back to the, to the early days of the work we've been doing. I went back to our, our records um, over the weekend because I'd, um, I was sending a note to, um, to our development team to, to, um, to thank them for all their work to date and to, to encourage them for the next few weeks as we get ready to open source Corda, our, our distributed ledger platform. And I went back into our, um, into our source code control system and, and I looked to see the very first commit. So I went back page after page and there were like, I think there were 85 pages of commits. And the very first one was from November the 3rd, 2015. So it's almost a year since we started work on it. Um, and work began about five or six weeks after the architecture working group of our three was instituted. And the, the, the reason we began work on it was because we've been studying blockchain systems. We'd come to the conclusion that they're all about bringing parties who don't fully trust each other into consensus about some shared facts. And we'd gone further and we'd said the one of, not only, but one of the key reasons this could be relevant is because banks are almost defined by the shared facts they have with their peers, the contracts, the agreements, the trades, the um, the deals and so forth. And it seems that if you could get to a point where those deals and those trades and those, um, those, those records were in sync with your peers, you could take out so much risk, cost, complexity. But then when you look at the, the technology that has inspired all this, the thing that actually got us through that logical journey, it wasn't designed to solve the problems of banks. You know, the, you know, the Satoshi Nakamoto, when he invented Bitcoin, you know, he didn't wake up, one, he didn't wake up thinking, I want a blockchain. And two, he didn't wake up thinking, I want to solve the problems of the world's investment bank. So that, that wasn't what motivated him. So it would be unusual and a bit surprising if those technologies that were not designed for this happened to be the perfect solutions. And when you look at them, you know, they, they were hugely inspirational and they showed us that it, was, that it was possible to build these systems that bring banks into consensus with each other. But they're designed for different problems. So in general, they're designed in a way that requires all data to be processed by all peers. So if you think about that, you 
think, okay, you and I have entered into a deal, you've lent me some money, and suddenly we send a copy of that to all our friends and everybody who knows us, and we ask all our friends and everybody who knows us to validate that information, and we ask them all to vote on whether it should be processed. We need that for some public blockchain systems like Bitcoin and Ethereum, but that's not how finance works and it doesn't solve our problem. You, you, the idea that, that private information would be shared with everybody and everybody would process it kind of doesn't make sense. So Corda really came from a thought experiment that said, how do we build a system that gets these benefits of consensus, allows us to manage and automate deals between different financial institutions? But how do we do that in a way that doesn't leak data everywhere, doesn't run at the speed of the slowest computer, doesn't require everybody to validate everybody else's transactions if they shouldn't? Um, and we started simulating. We worked with um, all our members who gave us a lot of input to the design. They, they were governing the work we were doing. The simulation graduated into prototyping. And then in a about March or April this year, um, we believed Corda was reaching the point where actually this this is a thing. This thing is genuinely different to what other platforms are. It's not a me too. Um, this is a contribution to, to what the world's doing. So we announced it. We demonstrated actually with, with Barclays, um, who, who actually are one of the towers I can see behind your shoulder. We demonstrated in public that this Corda thing actually has value and it works. And we said it will be open sourced, which it will be on, on November the 30th. But in the short, you know, the short answer to your question is, how is it different? Um, it is designed by and for financial institutions. Its focus is not on cryptocurrency or virtual machines. Its focus is managing um, legal agreements between regulated institutions. It's designed to integrate and interoperate with um, existing systems in banks. Um, and, and as I say, it's designed to integrate well with the legal system. You know, these, these contracts, these things we're managing on the platform, um, you know, in the event of dispute, there has to be a way to resolve them and to enforce them. So it, so this isn't the idea of you know, computers running a mark and controlling the world. This is computer code, this is computer data that in the event of dispute is grounded firmly in legal reality. Is it fair to say this isn't a silver bullet that fixes all of the world's ills and all of the bank's ills? It's really quite targeted, at, as you say, dealing with financial agreements and how we come to consensus on the state of those financial agreements. So um, is it very targeted around that or, or will it solve for settlement and all the other things in post-trade too? Is this, is, what's the scope here? Is it, is it just that piece? It's a really good question. So it's, is, it, is it the solution to all the world's ills? Uh, strange. No, it's mm -hmm. not. Um, that was, um, you know, and, and be very suspicious of anyone who claims of what they're building is. But it, but it's been quite interesting how it's developed. So we, we were very, I th well, very precise. I think, I think, I think we were very precise in, in how we, how we scoped the design. We said, we think the problem or one of the problems to be solved, as you say, is managing agreements between financial institutions. So to drive the design, we said, to, to almost as we call them the architecturally significant use cases. We said this platform needs to be able to, to model the idea of on ledger cash, the idea that I can manage a bank, I can represent a bank balance that can be transferred reliably and, 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 and regulatorily satisfactorily. I need to be able to represent a security. So we, we used a corporate bond as an example, and it needs to be able to represent a derivative instrument. And we chose a credit default swap because it also has insurance characteristics. And they seem quite diverse, but they're also quite constrained. And the, the design of Corda was intended to be able to address in principle those three use cases. It turns out that once we'd um, built something that could address the bulk of those requirements, that it turned out that this actually turns out to be quite useful for finance, but it's more useful generally. This idea of representing a contract between two or more parties and evolving it and, and linking it to legal pros, that's not just relevant to finance. And it's actually one of the reasons we're open sourcing it so that you know, we, we, have, you know, we have our vision for how it will be deployed in finance, but it's applicable elsewhere and we, we're looking forward to a much broader community contributing to it. 
Very, very interesting indeed. And one of the things um, I know uh, you and I have talked about previously is this idea that uh, will we be getting rid of all of bank systems and all of bank's knowledge and everything we knew before because now a distributed ledger exists? Or do we need complementary technologies still? Do we still need to think about cloud? Do we still need to think about other technologies in there like Java and JVMs and, and other bits to it? Or is there this new distributed ledger thing? What, what's, what's your position on that? It's, um, it's, it, it's, I guess it, it's additive. This is not going to replace everything. I mean, even if, um, you know, banks deploy distributed ledgers, um, wholesale and for all their operations, you still need to report. You still need to be able to back it up. You still need to, you still need to move data around internally. There are huge numbers of things. You, you'll, you'll still need email. There's still a huge amount of things that the, the world needs to do. Um, but we did, and I guess that maybe there's, maybe this is where you were going with your question. We did think very hard about what we needed to invent and what what we could reuse. So if you look at, you know, there are valid reasons for this, but you look at some blockchain platforms, they've taken an approach where they've they've reinvented everything from scratch, their own tools, their own virtual machines, their own languages, everything from top to bottom has been rebuilt from scratch. And that's that's, that's very interesting and it has some value, but it's also very expensive and imposes a a big burden on the teams um, supporting it. What we did with Corda was said we said what is the what is the what is the essence of what needs to be built this consensus layer this layer that can represent agreements um, that's where we'll focus but actually moving the data around well you know what there's messaging systems for that actually storing the data there's already existing databases actually running the business logic well you know the Java virtual machine has been around for twenty years why don't we use that. There's some work we have to do to make it deterministic. We need to make sure that if I run a calculation and you run a calculation, we both get the same answer. Mm-hmm. So guess what? We've done some work just on that bit of the Java virtual machine, and we'll be open sourcing that. But if I look at the dependencies for our code base, you know, there's um, a large amount of code we've written. And last, the last time I checked it, I think there are 55 open source projects that we also depend on. There's a huge amount of reuse. That's, that's incredible. And I think it's something that's often missed uh, in this whole blockchain space. People see the hype. People see um, a lot of things where you know blockchain is going to change the world, but actually with the vision you're giving me is, is a very sober, very sort of targeted view as to where you believe Corda is going to help financial markets in the near future. So Richard, um, I want to thank you for joining me today. Um, where can people find out more about R3 and the work you guys are doing? R3.com. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Richard, for that awesome insight into R3 and Corda. And because one Richard is never enough, we've brought back RBS's Richard Crook to talk about the current and future state of distributed ledger technologies. Back to, well, back to me. So I'm here with Richard Crook from RBS, the famed Richard Crook. Uh, it's great to have you with us on FinTech Insider. Uh, why don't you tell us what you do at RBS? So, uh, Simon, great to, great to be here. It's a fantastic view uh, for those who can't see it. Um, the, uh, I run a high energy team of, of engineers and innovators uh, who are currently both helping uh, the customers uh, and our uh, bank from innovation point of view and also from disrupting uh, inside the fintech space broadly, looking at themes around AI, cloud infrastructure, APIs, uh, and of course, blockchain. Ah, that, that old chestnut. Um, so how did you discover that old chestnut we call blockchain? Uh, so this takes us back. This is, this is great. We... Um, we ended a uh, Deloitte uh, digital hackathon back in November 2014, and I took a small team over there, and we backed uh, Royal Bank of Scotland's uh, wholesale FX trading desk, uh, the FX MicroPay product, into uh, the Ripple network, uh, and started to discover uh, what it would be like to be a market maker uh, in that space, uh, and that exposed us to all the different digital currencies that were 
uh, rolling around inside the Ripple consensus network at the time. We came away with uh, the first prize on that, and, and that kind of catapulted us into the innovation wing of the bank, uh, where we have been running the blockchain lab ever since. Very, very cool. And so when you're going into that hackathon, uh, what was kind of the thesis behind why you're going to um, try and do FX and digital currencies? What, what did you learn and, and what did you want to learn going into it? Was it just kind of experience the unknown? Interestingly enough, it's taken us on a journey which has built a, uh, an internal product we call it an innovation spike, mm-hmm. which takes a, a new technology with an old business problem and we marry those up four days four or five engineers, a subject matter expertise, and, and that gives us usually um, a jolt of corporate knowledge. It lifts yeah. us. Um, we normally don't go in with a hypothesis, and even if we do, uh, as soon as the engineers fan out and learn, the hypothesis immediately gets turned over and we start looking at new things. So the hackathon, we discovered very quickly, there's no liquidity, there's loads of currencies, many more than you can ever write down, and as soon as you start taking something like a wholesale trading desk in there with access to the the, the wholesale prices, you, you immediately see that the spreads are absolutely off. And that's because there's no liquidity uh, or there's now liquidity, but there wasn't in those days. Uh, and that gave us a huge learning uh, around how immature this space was when we started. It's like a frog trying to swallow a shark. It's it's not going to happen when you've got something very, very large trying to use something very, very small. But who knows? Maybe that changes. And, and talk to me a little bit more about the spikes, because I've heard the terminology of sprints in agile a lot. And, and a lot of banks are talking about being agile, being lean. What's the How's a spike different? Like, what are you measuring there? What are you trying to achieve with spikes? So you take a sprint. Most people are comfortable with an agile sprint, two weeks. The terminology around a spike, again, the agile community uh, is aware that uh, if you have something that's technically hard, uh, there's some risk around that, technology risk around that. You may take one or two engineers or one uh, engineer who might do a bit of extreme programming and pair up to try and (laughs) de-risk that that challenge before they then put it back on the backlog and they now understand how much it's going to cost. So it's quite a a normal thing. What we did was kind of scale that into actually if we take some top-end engineers for for a very small amount of time, not enough that they're going to build something that you wouldn't be prepared to throw away, but short enough time, so long enough that they've got time to build something, it changes the dynamic of the conversation where you may be used to the sort of 40-man workshops where you're all sitting there talking about things you don't understand. Actually, if you turn up with a working prototype that you've built in four days with some new tech, the conversation changes because the old adage of code wins arguments, it's really easy to have a conversation or an argument mm-hmm. if you've actually got the solution and the naysayers are immediately silenced. So that's the, the construct of it. Um, and from our perspective, it's been very successful in leaping us uh, forward internally on some of these new technologies as they've emerged. I think leaping is an interesting word. Seeing is believing. Uh, definitely, when you see something, it becomes a lot more real. And then also when you uh, kind of take that leap, instead of taking two to three months to figure out what bit of code are we going to write to learn something, you actually admit that you don't know something really early on. You do perform a spike, learn very quickly. And then when you do go into the two-month process, you've got a lot more information and you're not having to repeat that two-month process two or three or four times just to get learnings out of it. Absolutely. And for those those poor souls who are, are still looking at the kind of waterfall, Prince 2 type mentality and are, and are lost at this point, it, this is, from an enterprise program perspective, technology de-risking. 
So it will be on your risk log. It's there. It's a technology risk. Actually, let's go send some people off to work in a very small uh, effort to come back and mitigate that risk. So it works in both, uh, both practices. So speaking of new technologies, then, the subject this week for Fintech Insider is all, all about blockchain. And I guess I'm curious to know, what are your current thoughts on the state of blockchain? You know, what's needed for it to be successful? There's a lot of people saying, oh, it's a solution looking for a problem. You know, is, is this your view? Do you think there's um, a current state out there that's changing and evolving? Will it become useful? A lot of I, questions. But. I have a lot of questions. Yeah, I'm pleased with uh, the current uh, state of, uh, you call it blockchain, I would call it the distributed ledger technologies. Um, I think if you separate the concerns and we look at the technology layer, that's broadly converging. No vendor has taken or become king. And what we're seeing is a good open source community growing, maturing. Uh, the recent hacks on, on Ethereum only strengthen that community as we all learn from that. We are seeing broad and strong collaboration between the players, competitors uh, and clients alike. There has now been a broad move to focus on business problems rather than the technology for technology's sake. Uh, and last but not least, uh, I think the debate is now moving towards, if you look at some of the original blockchain uh, use cases, and the experiment in Bitcoin is a good example, the decentralized business model that you and I have spoken about on Twitter is now coming back into, into focus because actually you're paid to be part of the network in Bitcoin. And that is how you get paid. That's how it becomes a decentralized model. And one of the things we're trying uh, to encourage uh, in the collaborations is not to recreate these centralized entities because actually we've got to create decentralized business models and we've got to work out as an industry how to be paid to run these decentralized models. We're not going to do it for free. Our clients don't expect that, and, and they certainly wouldn't wish us to. What they want us to do is run a very safe, trusted uh, network and for us to be remunerated reasonably for doing so. And that is the next debate. Super interesting. You talked a lot about business models there and business model change. And, you know, when the people say a solution looking for a problem, um, you talked about, you know, solving real business problems. Can you give us an example that makes it real in financial services? Like talk about the problem today and then talk about how some sort of distributed ledger tech would start to alleviate that problem. Yeah. And the, and the easiest one for that is, is by far the biggest one. We spent about a decade or the previous decade removing back office cost in the large investment wholesale banks. And to a greater or less extent, what that was, was the convergence of sources of truth inside these uh, large banks, be it the counterparties that we're trading with, uh, be it the trading calendars, it couldn't be anything. But you're uh, trying to make sure that you don't have two versions of the truth. Because if you do, you've then got a competition inside, you've got better still reconciliations. And these little little large reconciliation industries, cottage industries that have grown inside the wholesale banks have been eradicated to a greater or less extent within the bank. Now we have a technology that is starting to show the ability for us to come to consensus between two of these banks. And I always use the adage of uh, the man with two clocks. The regulator receives daily huge tracks of data from the, uh, each of the regulated entities around the world. And those, those, those data sets should add up. Uh, there's only so many trades and they should concur uh, or at least uh, net off. And they don't. 
So the regulator finds himself there with two sets of data on a daily basis, and he's like a man with two clocks. He doesn't know the time. Mm -hmm. If you get to a position, and we're not talking uh, tomorrow, if you get to a position where there is a single source of truth between those two banks, and the regulator is reading from that single source of truth, the onus for the regulator to come to the banks and ask for that data goes away because there is this single source of truth that the regulator can source from. That will eradicate a huge back office cost. And that is where uh, you will see the focus over the next uh, few years. Huge back office cost, but also potentially take a lot of risk out of the system, right? So if the regulators can see what's really going on, then perhaps they at least have one view now. It doesn't mean they'll necessarily catch everything, prevent everything, but that's a better position than they're in today. Uh, having spent a, a huge amount of time doing uh, regulatory reporting out of one of the back of these big banks, every business case is based upon uh, the risk profile on the balance sheet. So uh, however millions you're going to spend on the program, it's always orders of magnitude more on the benefits case. And that may be people, and there is always a people play, in terms of the cost efficiencies, but in terms of the capital liquidity that you have to hold on your balance sheet because of the, as you say, risk in the system, it's massive. It's huge, and it makes these business cases very easy uh, for the regulatory reporting programs. So you you said it's not going to happen tomorrow. What are we going to see over the next three, five, ten years? Is this stuff real? Is it something that people should be paying attention to? I think if we look out over three to five years, where there is business cases around uh, consensus, where we're trying to converge on consensus, this is where uh, it's going to work. And I think if you look at what we are expecting over the next 10 years, we should hope to see an open standard, um, an open network, uh, open access for for people to to use, much like the, the public internet protocol, IP internet that we have today. Uh, we will undoubtedly see the emergence of um, uh, large platforms on top of that network. Um, and hopefully those platforms won't own that technology layer beneath. And the best examples of those are things like Amazon and Google mm-hmm. um, in the internet. And the, 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 the new ones for this blockchain networks will, will, will emerge. And then finally, we want to make sure that there is ability for new entrants to come in and disrupt mm-hmm. um, things like Instagram is a great example of because there is an open access to that technology layer, the public IP, the internet, Instagram can exist, can compete with the Googles and the and, and the Amazons. And we'd want to see the same inside this uh, new arena. So that's really quite radical, isn't it? I mean, if you think about financial services today, there's this very closed world um, that only banks can operate in. And to hear somebody say that it's good for innovation, good for banks to be able to invite more people in, seems like not what you think banks would want. Is there a business case there for opening this up? What's uh, the rationale for a bank to be on more open platforms? Is there more to it than just reducing back office costs? Are there other opportunities that start to come on the back of it? I think uh, you start with the customer. You always start with the customer. The customer is demanding better services. um, And for them to demand better services, uh, we need to respond. And in the way we want to respond, uh, we are tied to quite a lot of incumbent uh, industries and utilities and technology uh, that, that a lot comes out on. Actually, what we want to see is the innovation 
throughout that uh, industry in those incumbent uh, industries and, and, and those utilities to get us to a position where we can deliver to our customers better services. Fantastic. And so for our listeners, if they want to find out more about RBS on innovation, where would they go? So I think uh, what you've seen over the last year is a whole series of hackathons. Uh, Those are public events. People can come in, see a bank innovating and working with the fintech community, Uh, people like yourself, Simon. And uh, bankofapis.com is the new portal uh, attracting fintechs uh, and hackathons uh, participants alike. Uh, And that gives you a a view of where we're going with our open innovation. Fantastic. Bankofapis.com. Make sure you get there. Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. I think we all got a bit smarter after those interviews. And those Richards and Ajit, they're part of the reason I love this subject so much. What a great set of interviews. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe to our Fintech Insider podcast, review us on iTunes, and befriend us on our new Fintech Insider Facebook page. That's all, fellow Fintech Insiders. Talk to you soon.